Welcome to the episode. Oh my God, to the episode. I can't even. We'll start over, Aaron. Welcome to the show. I haven't had any coffee yet. We'll be what? much better. Why? It's afternoon. I know. You just didn't? I, know. I just didn't. And then now I was like, oh, my coffee's cold. <laughs> Welcome to episode 360 of The Fascinating Podcast, a show about the fascinating people and events at the heart of our cultural conversations. I'm Kathy Kong. I'm Matt Michelotis. And I'm J.R. Foresteros. On this week's show, we're talking about the race of mermaids and more importantly, the question, who gets to tell a story? So in that vein, I gotta know, have y'all seen Across the Spider-Verse yet? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Kathy it was amazing it was super fun Um, visually stunning music fabulous story tugged at my heart there were several times when my sons looked over at me anticipating the tears (laughs) as they always do um and the cliffhanger was just like, oh, are you kidding me? We all got up and we're like, how long do we have to wait for the next one? Oi, oi, oi. How about uh, you two? Yeah, our, so I had, when, when they first announced the sequel, they announced Spider Across the Spider-Verse Parts 1 and 2. And then when they actually got to like, putting out a poster and a trailer and all that. It was just across the Spider-Verse. So I had like kind of forgotten that this was likely going to be a two-parter sort of thing. Yeah. But towards the, like towards the end of the movie, it felt like it felt like we're sort of running out of runtime and there's just too much story to bring to any sort of satisfying conclusion in the time that's left. Uh, But yeah, when that to be continued popped up on the screen, our entire theater like groaned in that way that let you know everyone would have sat there for three more hours if it meant we could have finished the story because everyone was so in on it. Yeah. (laughs) Matt, how about you? Well, I was a little concerned when I saw JR's review before I went that said an A plus movie because I can't even remember the last time you gave an A plus. Yeah, that's right. So I was a little nervous, and uh, I that told I overhyped it. Well, yeah, I thought I might go, and maybe it's all, maybe I'm expecting an A plus, but it's an A minus, and then you you get the letdown, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so Ali and Micah went with me, and we just had a great time, super fun, and uh, I do think one of the things it does really well, and Kathy was alluding to this, is that it really takes advantage of the fact that it's an animated film. Like it doesn't just do impossible things that would be expensive with special effects. Like it changes art styles. It shows emotion through the colors. It does all these things in a really beautiful way that it's not distracting, except in the sense that you're going like, wow, that's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I had seen multiple early reactions that said that they wished that they could pause and print and hang his art like literally every frame of the film. <laughs> and there's yeah, there's there's well, one scene in particular which we won't say yet because of spoilers. But it it almost felt like a Monet, like watercolor. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and I, and again, there was like half a second where I paused and I was like, I can't believe I'm seeing something this artistic in a, you know, big budget superhero movie. You know, it yeah. was such a it, it was so perfect for the scene. And yet it was something that you've never seen in a movie before. Um, just really incredible. Yeah. And and not being a comic book expert, I did read the newspaper comics for listeners who are like, what is a newspaper? It was like a physical Internet that you turn oh. the pages and you would get ink on your fingers and the oh, smell. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of cool. And I re- so growing up with that kind of comic strip experience, it was very true to that kind of visual. So you can almost imagine the storyboarding that happened and then the filling in of the art was really amazing. It was amazing. So, um uh, Elias, my youngest, has seen it twice already, and um, Peter and I may go back and see it this weekend. We uh, we're, don't want to. We may have to do a whole separate episode just to like really dive in and talk about the spoilers in the story because it's arguably even richer than the first one. Um, but I would love to know who your favorite new Spider Person was because unlike the first film, where I think we got six total Spider People, in this one there were maybe 6,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even tell you. Spider punk for me. I love yeah, spider punk. Spider punk was also my favorite. <laughs> did you see Jared? Did you see on his back? He had like FNSM on his, on his uh, on jacket. His jacket. Yeah. I didn't, I missed that though. Fr- friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Oh, nice. Love it. <laughs> yes. So good. Uh, now um, I definitely have to see it again. So I'm I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but when uh, the the character of Miles Morales was created by a comics artist named Brian Michael Bendis, who essentially responded to a bunch of fans when they were rebooting the Spider-Man movies. And there was this big movement to cast Donald Glover as Peter Parker. And then there was this, very predictable fan backlash saying Spider-Man can't be black. And so Brian Bendis was like, oh, yeah, watch me, watch (laughs) me. And he created the character of Miles Morales largely in response to that sort of controversy. Um, Now, it was like in an alternate Marvel timeline that has since been brought into the main time. And there's all kinds of canon stuff to talk about uh, with that. That's sort of beside the point. But um, it really connects to what we're talking about today, because. Um, there was this sort of gatekeepy kind of fandom that was saying that Peter Parker or Spider-Man can only look one particular way. And then you had a creator who decided to do something different. And, uh, you know, Spider-Man has been out as we're recording now for almost a week. Uh, Little Mermaid has been out for about a week and a half, I think. Uh, and it was surrounded by similar controversy when Disney did the live action Little Mermaid, and they released that uh, Halle Berry, Haley Berry. I always get this. Haley Bailey. Haley Bailey. Halle Bailey. Whatever. Halle. Ba- I think it's Halle Bailey. Yeah. Halle um, Bailey. Halle Bailey. Yeah. I I always know it's not Halle Berry, but then that's what I say in my mind, and then I just trip myself up. So, mm-hmm. um, so she mm-hmm. was cast as Ariel, and she is a black actress. And so again, predictably, the internet. 
lost its mind, and we had a number of people, many of whom claim the name of Jesus, who expressed outrage that uh, a mermaid could possibly <laughs> be black. Um, so we, I think, mentioned that a while ago. But Kathy, you know, you were you were kind of the one brainstorming this episode about like these these interesting questions about who owns these stories. So like, as you have witnessed, and again, these are far from the only two franchises that have had this happen. When, when we first had a female Thor, we saw it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The She-Hulk uh, Marvel TV show really, you know, dealt with a bunch of this. Like, as you, as you look at these controversies, what are the, what are the big pieces of it that really stick out to you or that you feel like are important? Well, you know, having, um, Having grown up as a Korean American girl, um, my exposure to literature and movies, art in general, has more often than not been white people writing the stories of characters that are not necessarily white. And so I find that kind of backlash of a mermaid cannot be anything but a light-skinned, redhead, animated character. Kind of curious and slightly hilarious because um, that is what fiction, specifically fiction, is very much about, is storytellers writing the stories of imaginary characters, whether they are human or not, taking on human emotions and relationships. Um, so that that's where I come at it from. And also as a Christian, watching other Christians, you know, get really upset about something like this versus something else like real life things, not that this isn't real life. That also concerns me and makes me laugh inside. And that there is always a retelling of the story of God and biblical stories told in many ways and never in the original way it was done, which is not in English. So, <laughs> you know, that's such an interesting point. I really never thought about Kathy when I was it wasn't until I got into college and I was, you know, I was doing a biblical studies degree that I learned how even within the Bible, the Bible is retelling its own story. So, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think the the easiest example is where you have uh, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus, but then he re gives them in Deuteronomy. And e I mean, even if you hold to the most traditional view of authorship, which is that Moses wrote all five of those books, um, there are still differences. Like the justification for the Sabbath day is different in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. So you have, you have uh, ostensibly the same guy telling the same laws, but then changing the justification for them. Uh, and that's not even once you get into like Samuel King's being retold in Chronicles and looking at those differences, you know, the different ways the four gospels tell their stories. Right. And, you know, I think we all grew up in an environment that downplayed the differences 
and tried to present this as the one real way it actually happened instead of celebrating that the Bible is a library of different perspectives. And that's a feature, not a bug, you know, that, in, that enriches our understanding of these stories. It doesn't harm or diminish or threaten them. And I wonder if we had grown up with a faith that leaned into and celebrated multiple perspectives, if there would be such a strong backlash against saying, hey, let's tell the story, for, you know, and, and give it a spin. Um, right. I, yeah, I never, never thought about that before. Well, and it's interesting too, right? Because um, all of these stories that we are talking about, we think about them as separate, separate stories, Little Mermaid versus the Spider-Verse. And yet scripture, the Bible, we think of it as one book. It isn't, it's not one book. But I grew up thinking that uh, the Bible was narrated by Burl Ives. <laughs> um, we had these cassette tapes that we would pop into a cassette machine, cassette tape player. Yeah, and, next follow along. Right? and you were like, yes. And then you could follow along in a just like the snowman from yes. Yes, Rudolph it the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It was, well, and that's how I knew that Rudolph and Santa and talking snowmen were real. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Bible is real. The Bible said and, so. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Matt, uh, yeah, I mean, again, you, you are a fanboy from way back. You've seen uh, these kinds of things play out in comics and movies. Yeah. So it's weird. There's a really long history of this argument or arguments like it in comics, particularly, um, but in corporate storytelling in general, which is what we're talking about, right? These corporations that are safeguarding their own investments in stories that they've taken from somewhere. Um, yeah, you don't hear people complaining, like Kathy was saying, oh, no, The Little Mermaid should be in Dutch, right? <laughs> uh, it just, they You're probably right. should be. But, if it's not uh, the way Hans originally wrote it, I'm not interested. Right, exactly. And they're like, uh, I don't know, there wasn't a talking seagull in the original story. And also she dies at the end in the original story. What's going on? Um So there's a very specific reason here. I think it's fascinating looking at comics where you see what ends up happening, particularly as we move into the 70s, is that you have all white men working in the industry with a handful of white women. Um, and just also a hand, like probably one handful of people of color somewhere involved. And you start seeing things like uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a series of comics where Green Arrow and Green Lantern would team up. And part of the story was... Green Arrow is a progressive liberal in every way you can think of in the comics. And uh, Green Lantern is a cop, right? He's space cop. So they're constantly fighting with each other. And at one point, Green like Arrow over says... Their over their ideologies, right? I mean, yeah, they team up, but they also disagree with each other about cultural stuff. So Green Arrow will be like, hey, man, don't pick on those people just because they're poor. And Green Lantern will be like, but they're stealing stuff. And then they get in a fight that lasts the whole comic, right? Um, and there's this pretty famous issue where Green Arrow says, how come we have people with green skin and blue skin and no people with black skin uh, around here? And that's how we end up getting a new Green Lantern who is black uh, pretty soon after that. Um, but again, Black Panther was invented by white folks. Um, there's some horrible opposite examples, right? We have this character called Bawana Beast 
in uh, in Africa who's a white man who finds an African mask that gives him power to like talk to animals and fuse them together and all sorts of weird stuff, which later in I think the 90s, he got sort of rebooted with a black guy taking over the mask. Um, but yeah, so it's really interesting. And then what we see in this corporate storytelling in particular is that you have Black Panther, uh, uh, a character who was created by two white men. And then as black people are allowed to start telling the stories in the comics and then later in the movies, we see uh, uh, not that the white people weren't trying. They absolutely were. It was very well-intentioned and there are some good stories there. But as black people start to tell their own stories uh, with the Black Panther, it brings a different flavor to it and a different, I think, honesty about the black experience potentially in a superhero world that's run by Disney, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's all fascinating. There's um, a book I have not yet read. Uh, JR, have you read it yet? Yellow Face by R.F. Wong. I finished it a couple weeks ago. Okay. So I just got my copy and it's in this pile of books that I need to read. Which is why I haven't had my coffee yet this morning, um, <clears throat> and it's a it's a really interesting story about a take on yellow face. So for listeners who are like, I'm not really sure what yellow face is. It is the Asian version of blackface, um, mm-hmm. a non Asian person taking on. Um, the existence, the story, the physicality of an Asian person. Um, so we have seen that in Hollywood. We've seen that in TV. Um, but this is a novel taking that on in terms of an author taking on the persona and name of an Asian author. Does that I'm happen sure. in real life, Kathy? Would that ever <laughs> I happen? I was going to say, I can't imagine that ever happening. Wild fiction. <laughs> heavy, heavy dose of sarcasm there in my voice. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting and excited about reading the book. Uh, JR uh, let me know that she was speaking at um, a museum in Dallas. So I joined in virtually to hear her conversation. And she also takes this question on and she actually says um let me pull up the quote she says that who has the right to tell a story is actually the wrong question to ask and i was like oh (laughs) what does she say is the right question to ask um i'm trying to see if she has the right question um Go ahead, JR. So the example I remember from that talk was she said that um, someone asked Roxanne Gay, who is a black feminist author, um, if she had a problem with white men telling black female stories. And Roxanne Gay said something to the effect of, no, I don't care. Everyone should be able to tell any story. But then they're fair game to critique on how well they've done them. And we should expect um, that oftentimes a white guy trying to tell a black woman's story is going to make a bunch of mistakes and do it wrong. And 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 then it should be critiqued at that level. But rather than gatekeeping who is allowed to tell what story, um, it it should be, you know, thoroughly and roundly critiqued. analyzed in, in a, through a critical lens for how well it was done. Um, yeah, so, 
oh, fair go ahead. to me. I, I was going to say, I think that's really fair. Like, one of the problems is people who are not good writers taking on people who are different than themselves and representing them poorly. Uh, or just ignorant with ignorance. Um, yeah. And I, I think every all, many of us do that, right? Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, difficult. so I found um, R.F. Kuang's response, um, mm-hmm. and I'll link the whole Guardian article in the show notes. Um, she responds um, and says, we're storytellers, and the point of storytelling is, among other things, to imagine outside of your lived experience and empathize with people who are not you. Um, and she goes on to say, um, are they engaging critically with tropes and stereotypes that already exist in the genre, or are they just rep- replicating them? What is their relationship to the people who are being represented? And mm-hmm. most importantly, does the work do something interesting? Is it good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think, Kathy, both you and I expressed surprise about, a pleasant surprise, when it came to Yellowface, was how much more complicated the novel is than even the blurb makes it sound. Um, because the blurb makes it sound like evil white woman steals from amazing Asian woman. Uh, and and if that's enough of a hook to get you to read the book, great. Go read the book. You'll like it. But uh, the story is significantly more complex in ways. It's it's It seemed like at every turn, uh, Kwong looked at her plot and said, how can this be less black and white? You know, what would make it what would make it trickier? So the you know, for instance, this is fairly early in the book, the book that hits the shelves that has the white woman's name on it that she stole from her Asian American friend who died uh, actually doesn't look very much like the original draft that she stole. She does a significant amount of editing, some of it positive and some of it like super cringeworthily negative. <laughs> um, so so that then by the time the book is actually on the shelf, the question of well, like whose book is it at this point becomes fair game. And the reality is the manuscript that she had, had it been turned into an editor, would have been changed significantly anyway you know so just that like that one little layer is is a lot more complicated than like took a book put her name on it and published it you know um and and i appreciate that because again i think when these questions come up they often get reduced to these like obvious binaries where it's like no one would say that stealing another author's book and putting your name on it is okay, whether they're a different (laughs) race or not. So like it kind of short circuits an interesting conversation um, about what counts as appropriation and whose story is it to tell. Um, Matt, I wanted to ask you, because I know you, you've written as uh, specifically in the Sunlit Land series, you've written Asian, Asian American characters. And I know that you are not Asian American. Um, So can you talk a little bit about, how Caucasian. you work through that process? Um, yeah. So there, there's a variety of things here. And I, I love, I, whether it was Rebecca or Roxanne Gay who said the thing about proximity to the uh, community, I think that's a really important one. Um, so 
you will meet people who've lived overseas in a certain culture. So I lived in, in Asia for a, a couple of years and they come back thinking they're experts and know everything about the culture, right? That's not the case. Uh, clearly, just like you wouldn't expect someone who moved to California for three months from Africa to know everything about uh, California in those three years. Um, but what it does do is it widens your relational connection and network, and it does give you some insight into some cultural things. Now, that's really different than Asian American culture, right? That's going to be different than Kathy growing up in a South Korean church in America is really different than my experience where I was in Asia. Um, and just even knowing that, right, is some people wouldn't even know that because we tend to conflate different um, Asian American cultures into one another. Uh, but so what it does is it gives you connections and relationship. And uh, so I also have African-American characters. I have international characters. I have Native American characters in those books. And what I did was I made sure there were representatives from those different groups of people who read the book and could say, you got this really wrong. And it takes some thick skin because you will get things wrong. And I did multiple things. And I'm guessing some things made it to print that are not correct. And I think that's right, that that means it's open to serious critique. And I, I think that's I think that's actually healthy and good for me as a person, as well as for the community at large that's reading the books. Um, so I think that's one of the beautiful things about writing about people who are different than yourselves is it's meant to open you to new experience, to new ways of seeing the world, to new understandings. Um, yeah, so, and I got, I got, uh, pushback on a variety of things in those books that had to be changed from different ethnic groups and different people, um, and different genders too, right? Um, because I, the main character, at least in the first book is a white, a young white woman, um, from a relatively affluent background. Um, and I am, I am white, but none of the rest of that, um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I have a friend who's an editor who is from Nigeria originally, and she says, you just cannot do it. Like, do not write from the point of view of someone else. And we, she and I kind of went back and forth around that. And I think what it boils down to is that she does not typically see it done well. Like, it comes into her inbox, and it's it's not good. Uh, and I think that it's harder that's what's so funny. Science fiction, right? Science fiction will go like, let's talk about racism with these aliens that are blobs and people. Because uh, that's so much simpler. Because you're just inventing the blob alien people and their culture and their everything. And then you, you know, create some inoffensive, stereotypical things about blob people. And you have some horrible names that are called, but no one gets offended, right? It's it's the lowest rung of being able to critique these sorts of things in a in a separate kind of container. I don't know. Anyway, I'm monologuing at this point. Someone stop me. Well, I think it's important that also, you know, in your situation, your example of your work, Matt, you are not presenting yourself as someone other than Matt Michelotis. You no. are a white man um, with a Greek last name. Yeah. So weird, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, right. and that's that's what's funny, I, right? Like, even that, I've had racist interactions because people have thought I was Latino. 
at different times. I've had racist interactions because uh, people think my name is foreign, right? Like after 9-11, mm-hmm. I was on some sort of fly list. I don't know what it was, but they were like Middle Eastern, Greek. It's pretty close, I guess. Um, so, so even as a white man, I have limited, very limited experience with some racial pushback on things. My dad, who's much, he's a decent amount darker than me. Um, and, ha- uh, he's had actual racist things. Cause when he was tan, when he was in the Navy, people thought he was black. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he grew his hair out, people thought he was native. Uh, I remember he came to visit me at college and my friend who ran the Latino group on campus was like, why are you hiding that you're Latino? You know, like stuff like that. (laughs) So yes. uh, I don't know. It's interesting, but yeah, I don't, I don't pretend though at the same time to understand the lived experience of people of color. I rely on my friends in that community to explain those things to me and help me represent it. Well, Um, yeah. And so I appreciate um, the additional questions that Rebecca Kwong adds to the conversation, but even that idea of that and Roxanne Gay, oh my goodness, like two giants yep. in the literary world saying, well, then if you do it, it's open to critique. Is it yeah, good right. or bad? Yeah. That is fair. However, the powers that be still in uh, the review process, who gets um, reviewed in all of the important uh, newspapers and magazines are still predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me is also this, it, it remains the question, well, yes, it's open to critique, but who gets to critique it and whose critique gets elevated and is the conversation as opposed to, oh, this book automatically goes to the New York Times bestseller because it made so-and-so's list. And, you know, there are a couple examples in the last few years of books where the authors are white, telling the story of non-white people and Mm -hmm. communities, getting great reviews. Yeah. Remember, uh, what was it, American Dirt? Yes. Is that the one? Yeah. Yes. And so there was there was some noise around that, and yet I still see that on, you know, um, book club lists and convers. Have you read this? Have you read this? And I'm like, oh, see, that controversy was a blip, and then the people who tell that story of this is great still get to carry that on. So well, and mild sorry, spoilers ahead, for Yellowface, but mm-hmm. all of this is very much addressed in that book. Mm -hmm. Um, she kind of takes you behind the curtain of the publishing industry Mm -hmm. and through the eyes of someone who has launched into an overnight instance, instant success. Um, you get to see sort of how the machine picks and chooses and then also how the controversy machine gets dodged and short circuited. Um, all of that is in there. And again, done in ways that I found, uh, frustrating in the most satisfying way. You know, they never felt like she cheated or settled for easy answers uh, and never let the industry off the hook. Mm. I think it's uh, if you're writing a book from a specific cultural point of view of any kind, whether it's ethnic, racial, religious um, and someone outside of your culture and, and you're targeting people from your background with that book and someone outside of it reads it, 
they are likely not going to enjoy different things or be confused by them, right? Like, I think that's just reality. Um, and so I think there are really wonderful works by people of color that white editors look at and go like, I don't get it. Uh, I don't, it doesn't resonate with me, but it would resonate with another audience if it was able to find it. Or an I editor about, of color you, to Kathy's point. Yeah. Or Kathy, even I think about in our book coming out in October, where we decided not to italicize words that are deemed foreign right? They're just words. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole idea of italicizing words is to say, this is probably unfamiliar to you because it's in another language or it's, you know, something like that. Whereas those, you know, those words may not be foreign. Like if Kathy is saying uh, the name of a Korean food, that is not a foreign word to Kathy. It's uh, just food. It's just food. And it's just like, we don't italicize taco, right? Uh, because that's considered right. American food now. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. So much, so many like weird political decisions taking place when we're doing things like that. Right. And even now with all of the book banning happening. Sure. And it's, it's also fascinating to talk with other authors. And the joke is, gosh, I hope my book gets banned because that'll help book sales and promoting because, <laughs> you know, we get it on the radar of a library or, yeah. you know, someone on social media to say this book has been banned. So make sure you check it out or you go buy it. Huh. Um, and, and again, I, I think it is important to say also that there are, there are going to be books written by people of color uh, writing about their own culture that are not good books. Yeah. Right? They're just not well written. And they get the green light because there is an editor who wants to highlight a story and an author. And this is what they've got. But that happens to white authors all the time. Sure. All the time. And so, you know, it it is so interesting to watch. So kind of circling back to Little Mermaid, it's actually doing really well in the box office. Mm -hmm. um, it's already crossed the $250 million mark in the global box office. It has outgrossed the original animated film, which I found really interesting. It has not done well in East Asia. Why is that, Kathy? Gee, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think? So... <laughs> yeah, because racism is not only for the United States. And um, and so box office numbers in, I think, China and Korea are low due to backlash. And I find that so fascinating as well. I don't find it surprising. I find it disappointing and frustrating. But I don't... Um, it, it racism is not just a problem in the United States. It is yeah. global. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so again, it's, it's who gets it. We, we kind of go back to this, the original question, who gets to tell the story? I think for me, what's been frustrating is that for so long, it has been mostly white people who get to tell the story any which way they want. Right. And it is backed up in the system of editors, directors, 
financers, all of that. And we are really slowly beginning to see more and more storytellers of color and actors of color, talent of color get to tell multiple stories, multiple stories. So Hallie Bailey is not a mermaid. She is what? not telling her own story. What? Right? That we know um, of. That we be. know of. She might be a mermaid. And maybe that's why she got the part, because she's so good at it. Yeah. Um, so I haven't seen the movie. I did see a little, uh, like, I saw her singing. Mm. And um, she has a beautiful voice. Beautiful voice. And so I know that there are folks who love the animated movie and they you know have seen the current movie and are not fans of the new music and you know all of that depiction good that's that's what entertainment is about because some people are going to like things and other people will not like those same things i just want more and more people of color to have a chance not only to succeed but for it to be okay for us to be mediocre Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a movie on Friday and when I was standing in line to get in, um, I mean, like I was, I was probably the oldest person there, even in counting all these parents. Cause all these parents were there with their kids that were like, was it the Paw Patrol movie? Is that even out? No, it was no. wrath of Becky. <laughs> no, um, but, uh, I, there was this, uh, a young black mother there with her two little girls. And I didn't even, I didn't really, I looked at her, didn't look at them, but we were standing in line and said, y'all spider verse in it. And she said, which I had already asked like seven people on the way in. Cause I was, you know, everyone was there to see spider verse. And she kind of looked down at her girls and said, no little mermaid. And I looked down and they were both in princess dresses. And I was like, ah, yeah, duh. And, and again, I just thought like, why would anyone be against this? Right? Like, and I asked if they were, Oh, I said, are you going to sing along? all the songs because i did when i saw it and uh she said actually they haven't seen the cartoon this is going to be their first experience and oh, i was like oh that's really ah. sweet. i mean the girls were i mean they were probably like four and three or something like that right really so sweet. yeah it was an amazing moment and i was like gosh should i get why why would anyone be against this that's bonkers I, to uh, me, you know the day that spider-verse came out i was driving through my neighborhood and there was a group of like eight middle schoolers or early high schoolers, um, some black kids, Latino kids, two white girls, and all of them were wearing Spider-Man outfits of one kind or another walking toward the movie theater. And I was like, that's really cool, actually. Like, we're saying that anyone can be Spider-Man. Right. Um, Yeah. That story you just told, JR, I've got tears in my eyes. I think um, that is why it's so important. And I think that is part of the backlash is that there are people who are opposed to that because they don't want those stories to be owned by anyone who doesn't look like them. Yeah, and they Um, don't want those little girls to feel like queens. Right. They don't want the empowerment, the um, imagination the beauty of that experience to be anybody else's to relate to. And, um, and they can, they can paint that uh, opposition any way they want, but that's what it comes down to. Right. It, again, it's about power and ownership. And I think about 
like I'm imagining those girls and what that means to them and that they have not seen the animated story. So it isn't a, oh, this is another way to see this story. This is the only way to see this story. And I've had this conversation with a number of my my specifically Korean-American, but Asian-American friends of my age. And um, we didn't have any of that. We are seeing things now. And I'm in my 50s. I didn't have that at all. And so it was this very much like I could pretend to be, I remember having an I Dream of Genie costume Halloween <laughs> with the plastic masks. Famously Middle Eastern, right? Very. Because she's a very, genie. Because yeah. she's yeah. a genie. And I'm sure she had very high SPF. Um, sunscreen. She lived in a bottle. she went. Well, you know, but she came out of the bottle, so she still needs sunscreen. And who knows, maybe the sun could get through the bottle. Like, it looked like she was, it was lit in the bottle. That's a great point, Kathy, actually. Um, So sunscreen 24, like all year round, not just in the sun uh, and in the summer. But that, um, so I don't, I don't know what that would look like. Like, I don't know what that experience would be like. And even my children, who are all in their 20s, don't have that experience of, like, looking at something for the first and only time reflected. And it's just you. Right. They don't don't have that. And so I think there is that reason why it's such a draw. And there's a reason why the big uh, production companies and publishers are now looking for this kind of storytelling because it will make money. That's correct. I have a confession. Um, what is it? I live in a house with two white children yes. and their two cousins are white. Yes. And all four of those white children went and saw The Little Mermaid and they also loved it. What? What? I mean, I don't understand, but... But Kathy's right. They wouldn't be making these movies unless they looked and said, we're leaving money on the table. Mm-hmm. That's how to... The the whole we're trying to be more inclusive. No, they're not. They're trying to get to more wallets, and it, it's a Disney tradition going back to the beginning. Um, so that's not surprising. The you know what kills me is the people that uh, <laughs> they try to make their objections sound reasonable because it's like science or something. They'd be like, "Well, mermaids would live at deep parts <laughs> of the water, and therefore the sun wouldn't hit them much, so they'd be very pasty white." And it's like, okay, like we want to get into science. They wouldn't be fish just from the waist down. You know, they, they'd have gills. They'd, they'd be all flat and weird from living well, down below. But, but, but even again to that, that objection was made by fish. one notable quote unquote Christian uh, outrage monkey. And he, <laughs> he was quickly corrected by all of these, uh, I think they're called marine biologists. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're like, yeah, there's shared- no black animals in the ocean. Yeah, they were like, here are all of these pictures of very colorful fish at any depth that you want. So so again, even more, even more to your point, Matt, right? Like this was not even a well-researched take. This, no, was, no. this was a straw that was being grasped at to try to justify bigotry um, and, and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I'm not racist. I'm just a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but that nature is racist. Oh, it's not? Okay, it's oh, just dang. me? Oh, okay. Uh, all right, it's just me being racist. It's fine. Yeah. Still racist, though. It is. It is. Oh, boy. 
man, I still think about, I'm still thinking about those girls and mm-hmm. how they, they hadn't seen the animated version. And so that's kind of their first experience of this story. And, um, you know, for all the problems of the patriarchy involved in the story, blah, 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 you know, that, that, um, imagining their eyes light up as they see themselves in this is just so, um, it is foreign to me. <laughs> it is foreign to me. And that sucks because it shouldn't be. Right. And I, it, it, that is why the more recent in the last couple of years, the things that have been on the screen or in books um, are such a big deal. And, um, and even though there are things that aren't great or are problematic, I think are still important for us to discuss. So, you know, not completely yeah. related, but sort of on the side is, you know, the, the series, um, the show beef mm-hmm. and, I mean, amazing, mind-blowing, so many things to talk about. And then the controversy came up, and I'm Which, still for left folks with... that don't know, Kathy, what... Yeah, um, so one of the actors, um, an old clip was found of a podcast that was also recorded on video of him telling this story about maybe raping a black woman and then he later said it was a story it didn't really happen for entertainment purposes right right for shock value because no one ever does that right ever and well he was um, getting pushback in the interview like one of the women in there was like oh you raped her and he was like oh yes so it's like even in the interview is it's interesting um and then the you know, the backlash and the controversy around that was, well, then we can't support this. We can't talk about this because now the um, co-actors and producers who brought him in are friends, and therefore we must not talk about this unless everybody comes out with a statement that is okay with everyone. And I'm left here and I think there are a number of other Asian Americans we've talked offline is, wait, does that mean we can't talk about this at all? Yeah. Wait, we do. We get to talk about all sorts of problematic pieces of work. The Flash the is time. coming out in two weeks. Roman Polanski <laughs> is still making movies somehow yeah. after raping right? a 14-year-old in the 1970s. So I think that that, again, ties in to this question who gets to continue to tell stories, whether the storytellers are accurate, fabulous, or mediocre, or just outright bad. And again, it feels like in all of those categories, often it, it, it's white people. They can do that. You can, you, they, you can do Me. that <laughs> and continue on in the system helps that continue on and so i'm i'm sad because there's so much to talk about with that show beef and it feels like that controversy blew up and then and i'm still like did we all not watch that same crazy show we should talk about that 
I need, Ooh. I'm still shaking it out of my body. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so again, it's, it's that, it, it, it's the other side of something like Spider-Verse mm -hmm. where people go in and you're like, here's this group of um, multicultural kids who are walking in and they all feel like they are a part of the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can only do that if it's, amazing and an a plus movie that seems unfair right. to me that's really unfair white people have made a lot of terrible stuff and uh, yes. still have careers yes yeah great careers in fact yeah sure i've made some stinkers myself <laughs> same same uh, well, obviously, this conversation is hopefully just beginning. Um, you know, we've had we didn't even get to talk about everything everywhere all at once or American born Chinese, which we're going to be revisiting in great. the coming episode soon. You um, haven't watched it. Great TV show. It's not oh, one of no. it's not my fascinating pick, but it's great. It is so great. I uh, my one of my besties, Tom first, uh, he sent his four children to us a couple of weeks ago to, to hang out for the week. And with the older three, who are 10 to 13, we watched American Born Chinese. And I was a little worried, like with the first, ep we Amanda and I had already watched the first episode. I was like a little worried it would take a couple of episodes for them to get into. Um, nope. The first episode ended and they were like, another one now. And I was like, oh, it's been time, guys. <laughs> and they were like, do it. So, oh, man. My, yeah, my were, poor Micah, you know, who's 13, was so deeply invested that every like weird high school thing, like two kids being mean to each other, Mike would be like, Oh no, why? Like it was really hitting oh, hard. All the awkward stuff. All oh, of yeah. the kids were like hiding under blankets and hiding their faces from the TV. <laughs> they couldn't handle it. It was so awkward. Yeah. The awkward stuff was really well done. Yeah. And then after Amazing. every episode, I would turn to Peter and be like, I hated high school. Really? <laughs> really? Mm. Yeah. Same Kathy. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So Not, anyway, so yeah, we're going to revisit loved all high of school, that. But just for the record. <laughs> Didn't you go to a Christian high school? Oh, yeah. It was the best. It was never <laughs> awkward in Christian high school. Uh, so we would love to hear what you think of this, what you think of Little Mermaid, of Spider-Verse, of if you've read any of Kwong's work, the Poppy War trilogy or Babel or Yellow Face. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear what you think about who gets to tell a story and where you've seen that done well. Uh, but before we go, I got to hear what's fascinating, y'all, because I'm almost out of TV shows. So, uh -oh. uh, Kathy, what are you what are you uh, into this week? I read a book. What? Well, I, li I listened to a book. What? I listened to a book. It counts. It totally counts. Um, the book is Hula. It's a novel written by um, Jasmine Iolani Hakes. And it is just one. It's beautifully narrated. Um, and it is about uh, a family in Hawaii, and hula is a core part of their identity and story. But um, uh, the author really weaves in wonderful history about the island, which was a sovereign nation. Yep. It was its own nation. That's right. Not part of the United States. Nope. And um, so she weaves in the history and uh, the um, uh, the conversation around who is Hawaiian, um, land ownership, blood quantum, um, and it is beautifully told, 
through the stories of a generation, um, multiple generations of women and their connection to Hula. So Hula by Jasmine Iolani Hakes. And if you can listen to it, again, beautifully narrated. How about you, Matt? Um, I thought given today's conversation, I'd throw out an older book called Erasure by Percival Everett. Percival was one of my profs in college, actually, amazing guy, African-American, and he writes literary fiction primarily. And the story of Erasure is about this African-American professor who primarily writes literary fiction, uh, who is being told by his publisher that critics and other people don't like his books because they're not black enough, and they want him to write blacker stories. They're too, um, yeah, they're too literary. Uh, and they, as an example, there's a book out at the same time by a woman named Juanita Mae Jenkins called Wheeze Lives in the Ghetto that has become a bestseller and a, uh, a critical darling. So he decides that he's going to write his own horrific black book called My Pathology. Uh, and it's it's very, very funny uh, and it cuts deep like it's satire for sure. Um, yeah, so that's Erasure by, uh, by Percival Everett, kind of a angry satire about some of the stuff we were talking about just now. Yeah. Sounds like a How good about, reading companion to Yellowface. Oh man, it is a great book. It is really funny. I've read it maybe four or five times. Um, JR, what about you? I'm going to switch mine and save the pick I had for today for our American born Chinese episode. So I'm going to throw out a book also called chain gang all stars. All right. It is by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Okay. Uh, Chain gang all stars. I found this through Roxanne Gay's email list. She's Mm -hmm. doing a book club on it right now. And it is set in the near future where prisoners who have anywhere between 25 years to, uh, uh, life or are on death row can sign up to be in this program called Cape where they become gladiators. And if they survive for three years, they get freedom. Nice. Uh, And they do one-on-one death matches like battles to the death. And they've been, they've been become televised and they, the um, people, the, the, the links as they call them, the links in the chains um, have become celebrity athletes in their own right. Uh, and it is, it's a novel, obviously. Um, but it's one of those that feels like it is both an indictment of mass incarceration and professional sports at the same time (laughs) while never feeling preachy. It's incredibly fun and heartbreaking and interesting. The world building is great. Incredible book. So I'm about halfway through it and it's just one of those I can't put down. So chain gang, all stars. Nice. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of episode number 360. We are uh, nearing the end of the season. I think it might be 359. Episode 359. It felt like so much content. Because we skipped a week, right? Two episodes. So, um, yeah. So, uh, before we go, I wanted to point folks to Think Christian. I have an article up there about the LeBron James biopic, biopic, whichever you prefer. Um, and how it subverts the biopic formula by focusing uh, less on LeBron than on his high school teammates. Uh, oh, it's a really fun biopic. So I enjoyed that. And Kathy, uh, you've got something cooking, I understand. Yeah, I'm going to um, have a piece up on my blog about um, being called into jury duty. Oh, nice. I feel like 
since you got citizenship, you're getting called to jury duty all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is my first summons. Oh, it is? It is, which is so strange because Peter has never gotten a summons and he's, you know, he's American born. We don't recall him ever getting a summons. And then I thought, I thought somewhere I heard that because I uh, volunteer, volunteer as a um, election judge that I would not get a summons, but then I got one. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. But that apparently is not true. Anyway, Matt, anything you want to? Uh, uh, yeah, there's a great article by JR about shooting stars, and Kathy has a piece about jury duty. Those are the two things I'm liking to you push today. That's nice. All right. Well, uh, on next week's episode, we are interviewing Tasha June. I'm very excited to hear her conversation and dive into her book. Uh, until then, take care of yourselves out there. Let us know what you're into, and, uh, you know, be kind to each other. See you next week.